If you're joining us today for the first time, our printer going down is a really big deal because then you have a bunch of middle-aged hillbillies trying to read from their iPhone screens and whatnot. So forgive us if you would. Um, we are going to be out of Exodus chapter 10, and you don't need a screen for it. If you uh, have a pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page number 52. We're going to read the first 20 verses and hopefully see what the Lord has for us this morning from Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. It says this, the eighth plague, locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that may you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do, not, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back into Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all of the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust 
was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of God go. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and bless us for hearing it. Amen. Grandparents' Day is coming up soon. If you didn't know that, Grandparents' Day, it's actually next Sunday. It's September the 11th. Um, What an awesome role God created in grandparents. The title really is, if you are a grandparent, I'm sure you would amen this, the title is totally fitting, Grandparent. As I get older, I realize how much better of a parent I am now than when the Lord blessed me with my first child, a son, 12 years ago. And I hope I'll be just that much better after a few more years of sanctification. The hope as a grandparent is that you get another opportunity at rearing children with a whole lot more wisdom, with a whole lot more insight. Part of grandparenting, as far as I can understand it, is telling stories. Maybe about when you were a kid or just about silly things. My paternal grandfather, his name was Jack Mort. Some of you may have actually met Jack. He did frequent our church a few times in my childhood. He was somewhat of an ornery character, and he liked to make things up just to get a laugh out of his gullible grandchildren. Northern Indiana is where he hailed from and where my people come from, and it is dairy cow country. So each summer, there are large round bales of hay in the field, and when I was five, we were cruising along in his, his uh, 1989 Ford F-150 that I inherited when I was 16 years old. Uh, we were cruising along there, and I asked him, what are those big round things in the field? And he said, well, I can tell you're from southern Indiana because you don't know a cow egg, a cow egg when you see one. He said, those are cow eggs. And he said, and then I kind of puzzled, and he said, yeah, yeah, the, the baby cows, they're in there, and they just eat their way out, and that's, that's where cows come from. And I believed that for a lot longer than I cared to admit. When I was six, my grandma made chicken fried steak for dinner, and I scarfed mine down, and enjoying it, I asked, what is this? To which my grandpa replied, boy, don't you know a good turtle steak when it's in front of you? So it was turtle from then on out. Still turtle in my house. It backfired on him because it st- I started to beg him to go turtle hunting all the time so that we could have more turtle for dinner. And later I found out that my cousin asked a similar question at another dinner that I was not at, and he told him it was buzzard. And so the next day they found my cousin laying out in the yard, playing dead, trying to catch a buzzard <laughs> for dinner. Grandparenting should be fun and joyous. These are the seeds of your legacy, but there has to be more to it than ice cream and Christmas presents. No longer are you caught in the exhausting work of constant diapering and schooling and discipline. Therefore, grandparents have a special role to play as the wisdom bearers and sharers, the storytellers. It isn't something that you're automatically good at either, for as funny as silly stories like Grandpa Jack's could be, true wisdom, true wisdom comes from God. And that takes work. Today's passage is special and different because of the first two verses in chapter 10. Just before the eighth plague, God has a sidebar conversation with Moses. He tells him, I'm going to send you to a hard-hearted Pharaoh and his hard-hearted servants 
and they are not going to listen to you. Sounds like a good time, right? But he tells Moses why he's going to send him back to Pharaoh again. He's going to send him precisely for the reason that they are not going to listen. And he intends this not listening to the man of God as an object lesson to their sons and grandsons, the future generations of Israelites. So just a little bit of review. By this point, Egypt is almost in total ruin, almost in total ruin. There are a few crops left in the field, such as the emmer and the wheat mentioned in chapter 9 after the hailstorm. There would be stinking bodies of dead frogs and dead livestock all around with the disease that all of that would bring. If Pharaoh had any hope of preserving Egypt by this point, if he had any hope as preserving them as a nation state, it was past time that he would repent and let the people of God go. But he hasn't and he won't. He won't. God intends to use this stiff necked Egyptian man and his stiff-necked people as a story of warning and wisdom for Israelite grandsons. Look to those verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson so stories of grandpas, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he want them to tell the stories? That what? That they may know that I am the Lord. At first glance, this passage, the pattern of this passage doesn't look a whole lot different than the other plagues, but there is a special thing going on here in the eighth plague. While Moses is involved here, he is a side character. Pharaoh, in fact, is the character. God wants to hold up Pharaoh as an example of what not to be, how not to act toward God for the sons and the grandsons of the Israelites. So there are four points here in this text that I think God is trying to say, is going to use Pharaoh, these aspects of how Pharaoh reacts to Moses in these 20 verses of examples of how not to act. Four points. Pharaoh, verses 3 through 6, refuses godly rebuke. Second, he listens to liars. Third, he reaps his rebellion. And fourth, he chooses comfort over contrition. Comfort over contrition. So let's sit at the feet of Grandpa Moses this morning and let's hear this story. It is God's will in this passage for you to hear this story of how God dealt with rebellious Pharaoh and his rebellious people and to be warned yourselves. That you may know, both in your heart and in your head, that God is the Lord. This is a scriptural story of warning. And scriptural stories of warning, although they might not make us feel nice and warm and fuzzy on the inside, they're just as important as the scriptural words of affirmation for how are we to value the sweet if we never see the bitter, if we never understand the bitter. So hanging over this text, as we, read each, we go through each one of these points, there's this quote, don't be like Pharaoh, don't be like Pharaoh. 
Don't be like Pharaoh because do not find yourself pitted against God. So point one, don't be like Pharaoh. He refused godly rebuke. He refused godly rebuke. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. The Lord, through Moses, is presenting the problem to Pharaoh with the opening question, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He is implying here that Pharaoh is the problem. God is saying to Pharaoh through Moses, you're the problem, Pharaoh. This is key. And if you do not relent, then any hope of economic recovery recovery will literally be erased from the face of the earth. You have never seen a swarm like this one, Pharaoh, that's coming. And you will never see a swarm like this one again. Nobody will. Look at that word swarm. It's the same word that's used to describe the people of God multiplying in Egypt in, Egypt in chapter 1 before the Egyptians attempted to kill all of the Hebrew boys. So in other words, it's like he's saying, you thought the swarm of Hebrews was a problem. This swarm is going to finish you. Let the people of God go. In this moment, it reminds me of Nathan the prophet, when he comes to King David after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Uriah the Hittite killed. He murdered that man. And he told him a story. Nathan told David, you remember this, told David the story about this, the little sheep, oh, the poor man with the little sheep, and the rich man came and took the sheep from him. And David got furious and indignant that a person could sin in such a way. And then Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. You are the man, and David deserved to die. But what did David do that Pharaoh does not? He repented. He listened to godly rebuke. Hear the words of Psalm 51, which are the words of David after he had been rebuked by Nathan the prophet. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. If a well-meaning person, sons and grandsons, right? If a well-meaning person comes to you with the word of God and says, you are sinning, you are the man, your flesh will probably bristle, right? In that moment, remember the wisdom of Papa Moses from Exodus chapter 10. Do not be like Pharaoh. Do not outright reject it. Moses comes to him and he rebukes him and he warns him and pretty much just drops the mic and walks out of the room. Pharaoh is left with a choice. 
And then the men that Pharaoh surround himself with, his counselors, they start chirping. These men were also hard of heart, according to verse 2 of our passage. And this is our second point. Do not be like Pharaoh. Do not be like Pharaoh because he rejects the rebuke and he listens to liars. He listens to liars. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Let the men go. That they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. He basically, we're out, all of us. But then he said to him, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that, that's what you're asking. That's actually what you're asking for, is for the men to go, just the men. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Look at who they blame for the plagues. Juxtapose it with who, 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 did, who did the Lord through Moses say is at fault for the plagues? Pharaoh. In, chapter, in verse 3. In verse 7, look at who the liars say is responsible for the plagues. How long will you let this man, Moses, it's that guy's fault. Get that, get that Moses guy out of here. They blame the man of God. Thus saith the Lord, this is Pharaoh's fault, but they lie to him and they say it's Moses' fault. And Moses and Aaron walk out and they say to Pharaoh, Hey, things are getting bad here, Pharaoh. They're going to ruin us. Strike a bargain. Make a deal. Let the men go. Surely, he's just, surely Moses is just playing the art of the deal here. Surely he doesn't want everybody to go. If we offer him the men to go, I bet he'll take that deal. That's a good deal. He'll take it. And then, the, then he says something, you know, prophetic. The Lord be with you if I ever let your little ones go. Pharaoh likes that plan. He says, let you go, okay, but which ones of you? And Moses repeats himself and he says, no, just, no, you, you don't really mean that. He knew that if he let them all go, it was over and they weren't coming back. The men would never leave their children in the hands of the baby murdering Egyptians. No, Moses, you're just asking for the men to go. That's what you're really asking. So go ahead. The men can leave. Now be gone. And I imagine Pharaoh and his servants probably felt pretty good about their compromise at this point. Crisis averted, right? We, we are going to let the Hebrews that matter go. We're going to let the men go. They're the, they're the main, that's the main workforce we've got. We're going to let those guys go out, all the men. And that was a big part on my, that was a big give on my part, Pharaoh says to himself. I, I feel... I feel like I'm pretty generous today. I let the, I'm going to let the men go. No, no locusts now. We, we struck a deal. We know those guys will be back too because we know they won't leave their babies here. Well played. Good job. Except not. There is no bargaining with thus saith the Lord. When God speaks, he means what he says. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in several places, he gave us some lists, 
so that we wouldn't be confused about what is sin and what is not. One of them comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is so much sweet, assuring grace to be found in the Bible, but that isn't the message of Exodus chapter 10. The story that Grandpa Moses is telling us is this. Don't be like Pharaoh. He listens to lies. He listens to lies. Thus saith the Lord means thus saith the Lord. When the word of God is clear, there is no bargain to be struck. The only thing that need be done when you are out of step is to repent. Repent. This is who your God is. He punishes the proud. We're singing our way. You just sang the fourth psalm today, which don't you love singing the psalms? I love singing the psalms. So much truth. I'm finding myself memorizing more scripture because we're trying to sing our way through the psalms as a church, and we won't skip the imprecatory ones. All the teeth smashing and bone crushing and all that, we're going to keep it all. Why? Because this is your God. Behold your Lord. He is more merciful and loving than we can ever imagine, and His wrath is more terrible than we could possibly ever conceive. Exodus chapter 10 beckons us to remember that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 26. But if Pharaoh would have repented, would God's face not have shone down on him? Would he have not stayed his hand? Does God not rejoice in the humble and pour out his grace upon them? Just simply finish the passage in Corinthians and you'll see in verse 11, he lists off all of those, those sins that, that a person can commit and be committed to and not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why? Because you repented. This is who your God is. He punishes the proud and exalts the humble. Third point, don't be like Pharaoh because he reaps his rebellion. He reaps his rebellion. They walk out, Moses and Aaron. Hmm. I, I, I like to when I'm reading stored narratives like this, you've got to put yourself in the mind of Moses. You've got to know Moses is walking out just shaking his head. Like, come on. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they might come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his hand and the east wind brought locusts that had never been seen or conceived of before and have never been conceived of afterwards. 
You ever heard the quote, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay? We're kind of, we're kind of removed from the devastation of what locusts can do. I found a, a good quote, um, actually, in reading the books. The, the Laura, Laura Ingalls Wilder books are popular in my house. Um, but on the banks of Plum Creek, Laura recalls uh, a day that a strange dark cloud descended upon their Minnesota homestead. It says this, Plunk, something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw a large grasshopper, a larger one than she had ever seen. Then huge brown grasshoppers were hitting the ground all around her, hitting her head and her face and her arms. They came thudding down like hail. The cloud was literally hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping, whirring of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground and the house and made the noise of a hailstorm. Laura tried to beat them off. Their clungs, their claws clung to her skin and her dress. They looked at her with bulging eyes, turning their heads this way and that. Mary, her sister, ran screaming into the house. Grasshoppers covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on. Laura had to step on grasshoppers, and they smashed, squirming and slimy under her feet. Grasshoppers beat down from the sky and swarmed thick over the ground. Their long wings were folded and their strong legs took them from hopping everywhere. The air whirled, whirled, the air whirled, and the roof went on, sounding like a roof during a hailstorm. And then Laura heard another sound. One big sound made of tiny nips and snips and gnawings. The grasshoppers, the locusts, were eating. And you could hear millions of millions of jaws biting and chewing. Day after day, the grasshoppers kept on eating. They ate all the wheat, all the oats. They ate every green thing, all the garden, all the prairie grass. The whole prairie was brown and bare to dirt. Millions of brown grasshoppers whirred low over it, and not a green thing was in sight anywhere. And then they were gone. It's hard for us to understand the magnitude of these plagues on Egypt. They were ruined. Ruined. Now, their gods, with a little g, had been shown to be a farce. This god, you know, each one of the plagues kind of has a corresponding Egyptian god. This would have been Seth, the god of the wind. Obviously, he can't control the wind real well because it brought locusts. In the course of just a few weeks, Egypt had gone from being one of the wealthiest and most powerful nations on earth to being totally devastated. This is the beginning of the end for Egypt as a superpower. Historically, if you study Egyptian history, they will never experience the same level of wealth and power ever again. Never again. Rebellion against the living God is expensive. It's expensive. And yes, it's costly to the soul, and we will get to that, and that's most important, but have you ever stopped to think about how sin literally affects the bottom line? It's expensive. It costs money. 
There is such a thing as the Deuteronomical blessing of God. That is, by following the law of God and God's ways, people prosper. Imagine that. Imagine that if you listen to the instructions given to you by the Creator, things work better. The Proverbs say that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Proverbs 13, verse 22. But laziness is expensive. Gluttony is expensive. Living beyond your means is expensive. Undisciplined, rebellious sons who squander what they are given are expensive. If you want to be a good man that leaves a legacy for his children's children, do not be like Pharaoh. He reaps his own rebellion. Repent and heed, thus saith the Lord. Young people especially, young mothers and fathers, or young marrieds, hear my words. Maybe you were dealt a bad hand yourself, and you came from people who in many ways have reaped their rebellion. In many ways, our fathers, the fathers just above us, may have provoked us to wrath because of their sin. But you don't have to do that. The trend does not have to continue with you. May my voice be like that of the prophet Ezra this morning to you in rediscovering this blessing in the book of the law of God. After generations of reaping rebellion, the people of God were filled with sorrow for their own rebellion, and then they wept with joy because they knew now what they needed to do. May that be the case this morning for you. Live not by lies. Repent of your sin. Join a serious-minded local church. Honor the Lord's Day. Bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Dig in your heels. Put your hand to the plow. Work hard and say with joy, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And start working right now to leave a legacy for your children's children your children's children, and their children. I know that many of you are taking these steps. Praise God. Do not grow weary of doing good. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And along those lines, I saw Lloyd Cruz today at church. Little Lloyd. Is he back in the nursery now? Yes, he is. Praise God. His first Sunday at church. Good stuff, right? Spoiler alert, he looks like his brothers and sisters. Oh, if I didn't say it, I officially nominate Lloyd Cruz to be on the next parking lot resurfacing committee. (laughs) The locusts have eaten everything, everything's gone. Through a Hebrew named Joseph, Egypt was saved by God from famine. And through a Hebrew named Moses, God struck Egypt with a famine the likes of which they had never seen. Pharaoh's negotiations with God have failed, and he doesn't like what his sin has purchased now. So we get to the last point. But he still, 
he chooses comfort over contrition. Don't be like Pharaoh. He chooses comfort over contrition. So he calls them back. Hastily, it says, Moses and Aaron. He says, I have sinned, this is Pharaoh, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind, and it went west, and it drove all the locusts into the Red Sea, and not a single locust was left. That was striking to me when I read this text. Not a single one. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of God, the people of Israel, go. Pharaoh gets so close. Look at his words. Look at what he says. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God to only remove this death from me. Sounds pretty good, actually, doesn't it? He says the right words. And it sounds like repentance, but it's not. When he says remove this death from me, he's talking about the death that his sin has purchased out here. Repentance says remove this death that's in here. Repentance says, like King David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He hates, Pharaoh hates the consequences of his sin, of his sin but he still doesn't believe that he is the problem. How do we know? Because as soon as he gets a little bit of reprieve, as soon as Every last locust is in the Red Sea. What's he do? Doesn't let him go. He doesn't relent. This lesson is probably the most important. Because when rebellion against God is committed, the worst thing about the rebellion is not the external consequences that it causes. Yes, it was really bad for Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba. But when David penned Psalm 51, what did he say? Who was he repenting to? Against you and you alone have I sinned. The worst thing about sin is that it is a rejection of the one who embodies the good, the true, and the beautiful. It's treason against the king of the universe. God cannot be played. A heart that is simply seeking to manage the consequences of sin is not a heart that is truly humble before God. God has given ample opportunity to Pharaoh to see himself as the problem. Even as he pours out his wrath on Egypt, he is being gracious. He could have just ended Egypt with a snap of his fingers and the people walk out into the desert all on their own with no Egyptians in their way whatsoever. But God does not do that. The plagues are progressive and God is being gracious to him. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is patient, not desiring any to perish but that all would come to repentance, faith. But even as Egypt lies as a barren wasteland, even as he is forced to outwardly acknowledge that he created this mess, it does not humble him before God. Your sin, you, your sin, your treason is not my fault. Your sin, 
your treason is not your daddy's fault. And it ain't your granddaddy's fault. It's not your wife's fault or your husband's fault or your children's fault. Your treason, thus saith the Lord, is your fault. It's your fault. Your sin and the destruction it causes is your fault. Let's all just sit here for a second and think about that. But isn't it just, but, 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 no. It's your fault. And every one of us, left to our own devices, is just like Pharaoh, proud in our sin, sitting firmly on the little throne of our making, hating the death and destruction it causes, of course, yet too proud to be humbled before God and say, yeah, this is actually my, my fault. And even so, while we were yet firm in our rebellion, God demonstrates His love for us in this. What? Christ died for sin, for your treason. Our deliverer, the true and better Moses, Jesus, He came to deal with the real problem first, not the death out there that our sin has caused. He will get to that. He will get to that. But first and primarily, our deliverer came to deal with not the death out here. He came to deal with the death here, right here, in me and in you. He has come to turn us from traitors to triumphant sons. He died on that old rugged cross that there would be a way for hearts of stone to become hearts of, of beating flesh with affection for God. God poured out his furious wrath, infinitely more furious than the Egyptian plagues. He poured it out on his son that we would never have to experience his fury for our rebellion. He drank the full bitter cup of wrath that we might drink the full sweet cup at the Lord's table one with him. And I'd like to be able to tell you that all you have to do is to say a few magic words. But Pharaoh prayed a sinner's prayer, and his heart was as hard as stone. We don't need magic words. We need humble hearts that truly believe this. My sin is my fault. I must have a deliverer. That deliverer is Jesus. It's Christ. No bargaining, no justifying, no comfort over contrition, no reaping rebellion, no listening to lies, no refusing godly rebuke, no conditions, just repentance. And so... Get up off your little throne and take your place at the foot of his throne. That is salvation.
That is deliverance. And that is the lesson, sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters. That is the lesson of Exodus chapter 10. Let's pray.